This is Hope and Dread Extra. I'm Charlotte Burns. And I'm Alan Schwartzman. Hope and Dread was a program about the tectonic shifts in power in art. We've heard from people who are making change and from people who are resisting change. Our guests were brimming with ideas and off-topic thoughts that we just didn't have room for within the documentary series. But we didn't want to leave them on the cutting room floor. So now we're bringing you a set of short, sharp bonus episodes featuring some of your season favourites, which will be dropping twice a week. Today we're bringing you more from Lord Vasey of Didcot, who we heard from in episode 3, Controlling Culture. Ed Vasey served as the UK's Culture Secretary from 2010 to 2016 in a Conservative government. Listeners enjoyed a wry smile upon hearing that Vasey would now, out of political life, support the return of the controversial Elgin marbles from the British Museum to Greece. It's a highly symbolic cultural debate for politicians and for museum directors. We started our conversation by talking about the realities of political patronage. You'll find during this interview that I'm very much a sit-on-the-fence, middle-of-the-road politician, so I can see both sides of the argument. There's no doubt at all that under the Cameron administration, and indeed under previous governments, including Labour governments, it's standard practice to appoint people to jobs who are your supporters. I mean, this is a great ecosystem of patronage which any government would be foolish to ignore and you can reward people who have backed your party by giving them plum jobs on museum boards or whatever you know I hope people aren't shocked by that but it's fairly obvious that's how the world works having said that it's also true that I think this government has gone a little bit further it refused to reappoint people that it regards as hostile to the government's agenda It has set an agenda of people sort of having to sort of say that they're more supportive of the government's aims. And they have this anti-woke agenda about sort of pushing back against what they perceive as the agenda of some people in terms of decolonisation and Black Lives Matters and so on to sort of attack British history. I think they are mistaken on that. I think, for example, if you take an institution like the National Trust, which did a lot of work on decolonisation, that work was going on long before Black Lives Matters. And as I've said in the on the record, it is possible to keep two ideas in your head. One is to be proud of your country and proud of Britain, and broadly speaking, proud of its history, but at the same time, recognising that things happened in this country's past that modern sensibilities would not countenance and would pretty shocking through modern eyes and there's no there's nothing wrong with exposing that and making it part of the narrative of the institution involved. Why do you think the government is sticking so closely to this agenda? Do you think it's a kind of cynical American style um, political tactic to swell up the passions of voters or do you think it's a deeply held belief? There is this thing called council culture. There is this talk about what happens on university campuses where literally every word you say is deconstructed and can lead to people being, I think, unfairly maligned. But I also think the government does recognise that it's a bruise that can be punched in the post-Brexit world that we live in and also in a world where the Conservatives have made uh, many more gains with working class voters than we have in our recent history. And a lot of those voters, perhaps understandably, do think that there is a sort of slightly sneering, patronising tone to a lot of our institutions and want them to be 
kind of more engaged in what matters to them. But there's no doubt at all that I don't think the government would be pursuing it without, with such vigour unless they believed that they had the support of the kind of voters that they want to keep in the future. So to get back specifically to museums, um, one of the one of the issues here is that the government is sort of um, telling institutions really what the agenda should be, and historically it's been the case that you know the institutions have been sort of left to make their own minds up and to have those discussions themselves. Take me into the nuances of that. Why is that changing, and and how is that changing, and where is that going to take us? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I think that. Um at the moment is relatively benign. It is definitely a, an element of change. As I say, the debate is very nuanced. The arm's length principle exists for a reason. It exists so that institutions can make decisions independently. But it also exists to a certain extent to protect the politicians. If you take an example like the Elgin Marbles, for example, most politicians would probably be grateful when the regular calls come from the Greek government to return the Elgin marbles, that they themselves don't have to take a position because the Elgin marbles, in theory at least, some people would disagree with this, uh, belong to the British Museum and are in the care of the trustees of the British Museum. And it's a decision for the British Museum whether they should be returned. And that's quite helpful for the politicians not to be involved. It's also helpful if theatres or museums or galleries put on controversial shows that might cause a row for them to say well these are independent institutions if you've got a problem with that take it up with the institution but I think what has happened with the current position is that this whole kind of decolonization agenda has kind of arrived at a particular moment when Britain has just left the European Union we've got a kind of Brexit government uh, we've got a government that's got more voters in the north of England than it has before, working class voters. Um, and it's just sort of resonated. And the government's got 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 involved. Whether it's going to carry on getting deep, more deeply involved, I don't know. So there will be individual examples where one might think the government has stuck its oar in too much. I don't think uh, we are anywhere close to a culture of sort of political commissars. There has been a bit of a spat going on, but I, it doesn't feel to me like we're on a sort of inexorable road to defenestrating our art institutions. One of the things that a lot of institutional people are saying to me in the UK is actually that they are scared of speaking out about the about the actions of the government, which they do find worrying and, you know, do send a clear message. So, you know, even if the government only meddles in a few instances and, and it is true to say that they have said don't move and contextualise statues in certain instances, such as the Jeffrey Museum. And that does have a chilling effect that can probably lead to a form of self-censorship because people I speak to in the museum world are worried about money. Um, you know, it's post-COVID. The pandemic has brought institutions to their knees and the government is in a powerful position because it is the benefactor. And so I think it is a little more troubling than a sort of, you know, tiff. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as I say, I've gone on the record to say I think the government should be careful and I don't agree with the direction of travel, but I don't think you can extrapolate from that that there's going to be some kind of extreme direction of travel where every dot and comma of what a museum does is directed by the government. No, no, nor did I suggest that. I just said that these were things that people were worried about and it does lead to a form of self-censorship. Do you, do you agree with that, that there's a kind of chilling effect? Well, I think... 
when public institutions take government money, there is always a complicated relationship. So, you know, I was an arts minister who unfortunately had to cut the budgets of museums and of many other important cultural institutions because when we came into power in 2010, the argument was that, you know, we had a massive deficit and we had to save money, even though I've always argued that the arts budget is extremely small in the great scheme of things and actually delivers an enormous punch for what it uh, for the small amount of money that you invest in the arts so it is complicated and you know when I cut museum budgets they did not stand up and say you are an evil uh, Tory budget cutter because they kind of I suppose take a pragmatic view that we have to work with this guy we have to work with this government um there was an organisation set up called What's Next, which I thought was a thoughtful way of approaching it, which was to say we're in this kind of nightmare of government cuts and it's so awful, but rather than just kind of King Canute, like sit there and say, we're going to oppose you every which way, let's take the situation and think thoughtfully about how the arts adapt and change in a world where money might be less scarce. This issue of decolonisation and restitution, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. You you supported the return of a 12th century manuscript that was stolen from Italy during the Allied bombing in 1943. You didn't did support I? the return. Yes, when you was did. That? <laughs> uh, that was a couple of years into your um, longest running tenure. Good for um, me as the culture minister. But you didn't support the return of the Elgin marbles because you said there was no clear legal title. Is that the line in your mind? You know, the difference between the two is that one was stolen and the other was you know bought with clear legal title according to the rules of the time is that where you would sort of draw that line on restitution no I think the debate has really moved on I think I would support the return of the Elgin marbles now and I think I was probably wrong having said that it is extremely hard to know where to draw the line there's kind of two or three arguments that that people play out and let's take the Elgin marbles as, as the classic example the first argument is the Elgin Marbles sit in an institution that is a world museum that is visited by millions of people from all over the world who can benefit from seeing the marbles in a way they perhaps couldn't if they were based in Athens. So that's argument number one. Argument number two is if you're going to give the Elgin Marbles back, at what point do you stop in terms of what you return? I mean, do you return every Egyptian artefact that is in the British Museum and the third argument is obviously, you know, there is a, there is clearly a, a legal argument in the sense that if you've bought something legitimately, tough, you know, we bought it, uh, you can't have it. So, uh, you know, one of the best exhibitions I ever went to when I was arts minister was when the paintings of of Robert Walpole were returned to Houghton Hall in Norfolk because Robert Walpole's grandson had sold them to Catherine the Great of Russia and they are now at the heart of the Hermitage collection in Russia. Now, nobody would argue, I think, that those paintings should be returned to the UK. It's very unfortunate they were sold, but they were sold completely legitimately by a willing seller to a willing buyer. So legal title does have a role to play. The Elgin marble argument is complex because clearly they were sold legally at the time by the authority that had legal title of them which happened to be an occupying Turkish army Uh, but they weren't stolen and spirited away but I do think it's a bit like sort of you know if it looks like an elephant and has a trunk like an elephant it is an elephant it is so obvious to me that the Elgin marbles are 
really kind of woven into Greek identity, that it would be a wonderful thing if they could be returned. And there are different ways you can do that. You could return them on permanent loan, for example. And certainly I think modern technology makes a difference because you can obviously make an incredible facsimile of the Elgin marbles and keep them in the British Museum so that people could see them almost like seeing the real thing. But I think things like the Benin bronzes and the Elgin marbles, they do have a certain resonance. They're part of the cultural heritage of the countries from where they came. They were acquired in dubious circumstances. And again, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting angle to the whole decolonisation debate that people think this is just woke liberals criticising a different perspective in the 19th century. Actually, there was vociferous criticism in the 19th century, obviously of slavery, but obviously of also some of the artefacts that people brought back and stuffed into museums in the UK. So there are certainly artefacts that came to the UK in pretty dubious circumstances. Well, it's interesting because what you're saying essentially isn't that, okay, looking back through, you know, modern eyes, we can see that this is wrong. You're saying it's a long running debate that humans have taken different viewpoints on through the through the ages. I think that's really interesting that you you've changed your perspective on that. I wonder what caused you to change your perspective? It was partly freedom, not being the culture minister. Uh, it's one thing for Ed Vasey, kind of quasi-private citizen, to say now that I think we should think seriously about returning the Elgin marbles. It's quite another thing for the culture minister and the government, which, although the British Museum, again, is at arm's length, funds the British Museum to stick his oar in. And, and, and perhaps it, we're sort of going full circle back to the arm's length principle in the sense that guess I could have said and perhaps I should have said at the time this is a matter for the British Museum and it goes back to the point that it's probably unhelpful for the government to get involved in this debate or a government minister to get involved in this debate because if a government minister says return the marbles and the British Museum is independent and doesn't have to answer that government minister you've suddenly created quite a complicated impasse which is difficult to manoeuvre out of so I can say this now I'm not a government minister and I and I would tell you I'll tell you frankly now that if I was a government minister I would probably be giving you a line. I'd say it's a matter for the British Museum. I might have private conversations with the British Museum, which probably wouldn't carry much weight, but I wouldn't speak out publicly about it as a government minister, given the relationship between the government and the British Museum. Do you feel hope or dread, both, when you look at the future of culture? Oh, I feel massive hope. Massive hope. I mean, I think, you know, I, as I say, I did this job for six years. I loved the job. It's always been my massive, massive frustration that my political colleagues do not take the arts seriously in political terms. I mean, there are plenty you'll find who you know, love the opera, love theatre, love the visual arts. But the complete failure to understand how important the arts are to our society, but also to our economy, and also to such a wide range of societal issues like criminal justice, education and health, is a point of massive frustration. So my hope is not necessarily placed in the government of whatever colour. It's not an attack on this current government. But my hope is certainly placed because I think the institutions are run by remarkable people. So my hope, uh, I'm I'm optimistic, and it, but it's based on the institutions themselves rather than necessarily my political colleagues. <laughs> For more from Ed Vasey, tune into episode one, Introducing Hope and Dread. Episode 3, Controlling Culture, and Episode 12, Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? Listen to Hope and Dread Extra every Tuesday and Thursday and subscribe wherever it is you find your podcasts. 
Hope and Dread is brought to you by Art and, the new editorial platform created by Schwartzman and. The executive producer is Alan Schwartzman, who co-hosts the show together with me, Charlotte Burns of Studio Burns, which produces the series. Robert Bound is our associate editor. Holly Fisher mixes and edits the sound. Additional research has been provided by Julia Hernandez, and our theme music is by the inimitable Philip Glass. <laughs> <laughs>